Welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. We have the esteemed geopolitical investigative writer Mike Whitney joining us. We took a break as Mike was talking and we were discussing the likelihoods of who is responsible for the sabotage bombings of the Nordstrom 1 and Nordstrom 2 pipelines just last week. We return to that discussion. Enjoy. Now, some people are saying that Poland might have been involved. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes the United States uses cutouts, but there's only one country that benefits from this. Let's turn to that subject because that's really what I want to spend some time on with you. Pepe Escobar recently wrote a September 28th piece called Germany and the EU have been handed over a declaration of war. Now, the EU are making claims that whoever's responsible for this will pay. And when trying to solve any type of crime as a detective, like any type of investigation, you know, you look at motive, who benefits, those types of things in order to create probabilities of who may be the main suspects. And I, I think your introductory comments are very important that if Russia wanted to make sure that the EU wasn't going to get any oil, they didn't have to blow up their own pipelines. They just turn off the spigot. They've actually invested billions of dollars along with the EU in the construction of all that. I think that the the damage to those pipes is so significant that this was clearly not a amateur program here. One thing I think we all agree on is that it was a sabotage. Uh, two or three different places were compromised, meaning it wasn't just a, a mechanical breakdown in sorts, kind of ruling that out. But I guess what might be important, Mike, is if the EU cannot get any oil from this pipeline, I think it's important to go back and look at how Biden and the United States has opposed this pipeline from day one. With Biden promising that if Russia invades Ukraine, there will be no Nord Stream 2, despite it being a contractual arrangement between EU countries and Russia and not the United States. Therefore, it appears likely that the United States may have have pulled the trigger on these explosions, but, but certainly are a likely suspect of being complicit in the sabotage. Can you walk us through the administrative holdups as well and how that was influenced by the West throughout this whole process leading up to the bombings and then also how the United States energy companies will benefit by being the sole providers now or at least predominantly the sole providers at significantly higher rates to the EU of the type of energy needs that need to be satisfied. Well, sure. They don't have the facilities for unloading a lot of their liquid gas that their LNG that they're sending already over to Germany. But I mean, Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2 in particular would have taken care of all of Europe, Western Europe's uh, energy needs for the foreseeable future and at a cost below the spot price. I mean, even though the price of gas was going up incrementally, uh, Russia had not raised its price to Germany that people don't even know that it was below the market price. So obviously they were more concerned about maintaining reliable relations with the EU and uh, providing this resource, this valuable resource that kept the factories open and the homes heated and the lights on, and then making tons of dough. Now they're making more money hand over fist by selling a lot less gas. But of course, that's all been botched by the blowing up of the pipeline itself. You know, people are talking, a lot of analysts are saying, well, this eliminates any opportunity for for Russia to have leverage over Germany, as though Russia was blackmailing Germany by selling gas below the, the market price. But it's actually 
the opposite of that, because I can't imagine that the population is looking at what happened in the sabotage mm -hmm. and not drawing the same conclusions that you and I have and realizing that at this point, the United States is obviously willing to inflict severe and lasting damage on its own allies to achieve its geopolitical aims. And that's really something that's going to cause people to scratch their head and wonder if they have the right set of allies. Absolutely. And I think that's really important to just digest for a second that the energy potential of Russia to the EU, number one, Russia has been for decades trying to become an accepted partner with the EU and the West. Okay. And I think that's probably one of the main incentives for why they were selling this gas below market price is to develop these types of relationships because how that, that's how important they were to it. Meanwhile, as you've indicated on past shows, the United States would have been outside looking in as this Russia-EU economic partnership would grow and grow and grow. Because with energy comes other forms of economic activity and relations. There's many other things that they were also trading with as well. And so if you go back to the, when you hear the words geopolitical, it sounds like, you know, some cosmic thing, but no, it's basically basic economic interest. When you're the sole unipolar power, economic power of the world as the U.S. is, and now that's increasingly being threatened and it's, there's no going back. When you look at Russia and China becoming stronger and stronger and countries like India becoming stronger as well. So that's clearly an incentive as to why Russia would have no interest in blowing up that pipeline. So I think it, we don't know who did it, but I think with almost absolute certainty, we can assume Russia did not do it. Is, is that a fair analysis? Yes, but it's more than fair because it gets to the underlying reasons for the war itself. And the war is just the, the military confrontation is just a manifestation of the economic realities that are facing the United States. And it's just, again, it's, it sounds complicated when we talk about geopolitics, but really what we're talking about is an economic war here that has gotten to the point where the economic sanctions and the propaganda and the political criticism, et cetera, is not working. And so in desperation, we've gotten to the military phase, which is the last desperate Hail Mary pass to try to pull the rules-based order out of the fire. Hey, Mike, I think it's so important what you're pointing to. It's not just military interventions that are going on that are trying to maintain the U.S. economic dominance, but it's also the whole history of sanctions that the U.S. drives throughout the world that sanctions, think over a third of the world's population now or whatever, also inhibits the economic competition they seek to suppress in what we claim for exactly. the economy. Well, just think of it. Germany's the basic industrial powerhouse of Europe is linked energy-wise to the cheap energy. It can prosper. Its standards of living can go up. Is linked to Moscow, where at the same time, there's high-speed rail going from Shanghai to Berlin. So again, you have your inexpensive, globalized manufactured goods coming from there. In exchange, Germany is providing high-tech stuff and, uh, and precision machinery, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a marriage that is perfect for both parties. It's only not good for the United States because in a world where Germany and Russia are friends and trading partners, there's no need for U.S. military bases, no need for expensive U.S.-made weapons and missile systems, no need for NATO. And 
transactions no longer have to happen in the dollar. People don't have to reinvest their money or in U.S. securities, in U.S. treasuries. So the economic power shifts dramatically from the United States to this Eurasian configuration and this new free trade zone that basically threatens U.S. hegemony. So that's why even if they can't cover up what they're doing with basic propaganda messages, then they're willing to go ahead and destroy this pipeline because what does it do? It achieves what they were trying to achieve with economic sanctions. It punishes, it isolates, and it helps to destroy the country that poses the greatest threat to them economically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think turning back to Pepe Escobar's article, there's a few themes there that I wanted you to speak to. But yeah, I mean, he, he indicates that it is likely, I don't think he uses the word likely, but he says we may be facing the case of an EU NATO member that was actually involved in an act of sabotage against the number one EU NATO economy, namely Germany's, right? That I think is what he's referring to. So that's pretty striking. There's so many things in this article, too. He speaks to just the international lawlessness of the United States. He talks about how we go around assassinating people. He says it's the murder of General Soleimani. There's just a number of increasingly undemocratic and dangerous vectors of U.S. foreign policy that have been being pushed farther and threaten the sovereignty of the countries that we are violating that we'll highlight later in this interview. But I wanted to return to our focus on this pipeline, sabotage. Yeah, there's a precedent for this attack on critical infrastructure because in 1983, the CIA blew up pipelines in uh, Nicaragua. So they were basically attacking their critical infrastructure at the same time. So I'm sure people will come up for you know other examples of this same thing happening in different countries at different times. But for now, that's the only one I can cite for you. So with respect to the obligations that Pepe Escobar talks about, that apparently Germany is contractually obligated to purchase at least 40 billion of cubic meters of Russian gas a year until 2030. Is are, are these type of like binding economic agreements or so? Can you talk a little bit? Absolutely. Even if they don't get the gas, they have to pay that amount legally. Will they? I doubt it. But people are talking about how ironic it is that the uh, pipelines were blown up on the 26th on Monday. And today, the a Baltic pipeline connecting the North Sea to Poland, you know, they're celebrating its opening. But the, the quantities of natural gas are significantly less than the Nord Stream pipeline is something like six times more, you know, billions and billions of 50 billion gallons of gas are coming through the Nord Stream pipeline. That's just Nord Stream 1. This uh, Nord Stream 2, like I said, would have taken care of all their natural gas at a very affordable price below the spot price. So Mm -hmm. it was quite the deal. German industry, and you know this, is not going to flourish. I mean, this industry, people are projecting that the industry is going to be pushed to South Korea and places in the Far East because German industrialists are already moving their operations because they can't pay the high price of energy. Well, and also in the same article, Escobar makes the point, which I think is a really good one. And you've, and you've made the point already in your comments, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. This is not just an economic loss for, for Russia. You were talking about how many countries of the West in the EU are big time losers. He says the EU energy giants are bound to lose big time with the sabotage. He talks about some German 
some Dutch and some French companies that are going to lose big time. And so there is going to be a lot of push to try to get, I would think, to try to figure out and bring to justice whoever was responsible for this. Can you speak a little bit about the nature of the damage and, and what it might suggest? Well, first of all, the Russians are not free to roam the Baltic and examine or repair it because they would possibly be under NATO attack. But people have already appeared on the site. And you just have to imagine that just like many of the incidents that happen in Syria, they're trying to cover up or remove any damaging evidence that might point in a direction that they don't want it to point. So right now, we don't know if it was underwater drones or if there were scuba divers uh, who attached the massive explosive material And we just don't know. And we don't know how long the pipe would be down or if it's fixable at all. So there's just too many unknowns to to talk about. But we do know that off that island, there's a number of sensors. And the United States had intensive surveillance of the area overhead. So there should be some indication of who was operating it. Well, the United States was carrying out maneuvers just a couple of weeks earlier. So they could have been involved in this. We just don't know. So it's a little premature to pass judgment. But again, if we're just basing this on who seems to gain, who benefits from it, it points entirely to Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I want to tell you that's a little bit off topic, but it might interest you because you were talking about the propaganda war. And this is kind of optimistic because this was taken among people in the United States. And it's a Quincy poll for a responsible statecraft. And uh, 57% of the people who were surveyed support the U.S. pursuing diplomatic negotiations and ending the Ukraine war as soon as possible. So despite all the buildup and the, the hatred directed at Russia and the propaganda directed at Putin in particular, the people still want to see an end to this war and think it's another pointless misadventure that needs to be put to rest. Yeah, and I think also th- this is really expanding and it's clearly an economic war in the geopolitical, the larger sense. And Escobar talks about uh, September 22nd, that there was an attempt against the Turkish stream by Kiev saboteurs. The day before, there were naval drones with English language IDs were found in Crimea, suspected of being part of, of the plot. You have U.S. helicopters overflying the future sabotage nodes weeks ago. A UK quote-unquote research vessel was loitering in those Danish waters since mid-September, and NATO tweeting about the testing of new unmanned systems at sea like those that you were talking about on the same day. Yeah, it's all very suspicious, and it all points to one country. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, there's been no word from U.S. intelligence agencies or even the, a formal comment from the White House yet, as far as I know. Right. But people in Europe are smart. I mean... What is the point of the economic sanctions? Okay, the economic sanctions were intended to punish, to isolate, and to eventually destroy the person who was the target of those sanctions. This is just the end point of sanctions in material terms, saying like, that didn't work, so we're going to take the extreme measure of doing what? Of separating the continents. We're going back to basic military blocks, the same as we did during the Cold War, except this is a hot war. But the world is being redivided for economic purposes, and that's going to be very costly, and it's going to impact standards of living and just basic security for a long, long time. How can you not anticipate that inflation is going to skyrocket 
if globalization made manufactured goods cheaper, then deglobalization is going to make them a lot more expensive. And that's what we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. And just lastly, I think getting to another point that was made in this article is just the lawlessness. You know, it sounds like this is an anti-U.S. foreign policy critique that is cynical, but it's based all in absolute proof of actions the United States has made in its foreign policy. Along with the measurable outcomes of those foreign policies on the living standards of the majority populations of the world that consistently we have shown result in the majority population's loss of quality of life comforts and the inverse result of that being increased wealth inequality in the United States and the world. It's really as simple as that. And if we have misrepresented those objective measures and statistics that reflect that reality, then bring it to our attention and we will correct it in the heartbeat because our motivation is truth and the amelioration of that portion of misery that's created by human beings through greed, corruption, and other forms of undeserved wealth accumulation and the foreign policies and domestic policies that promote it. But returning to Pepe Escobar's piece, he highlights these different dark side U.S. foreign policies, dimensions, if you will, that promote rather than reduce the human misery of the world. And the lawlessness is often its method. Uh, These assassinations instead of Soleimani, the terrorism in which we supported these terrorists in uh, a long history, including in Syria and before that in Afghanistan and all that, this all out financial war that uh, with the sanctioning, the, you know, the support of these neo-Nazis, in other words, the allies to the U.S. foreign policy trajectory, without doubt, have been consistently these extreme groups of, of, of terrorists in Syria, the al-Qaeda types, you know, which has promoted that, the, and these neo-Nazi types of elements that if people really care to dive down and look into that, they can see have been so greatly a part of that post-coup government, military response to the East by that government. And we know these are not exceptions or aberrations because of the clear history of death squads that we aligned ourselves with in the 1980s in Central America, in multiple countries, and in multiple decades. So all of those things, the common denominator is just this very frightful alliances with the worst elements of the world that seem to be part in an alliance with many of our initiatives, whether it's in Yemen, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in, in Ukraine. We need to look through the fog of propaganda and look at the, the validity or the misstatement that I'm making right now of the veracity of those claims, these assassinations terrorism, sabotage, financial war, support of neo-Nazis, etc. So in your closing remarks, we have the developing situation with these 300,000 military troops that have been recently activated in Russia. There's sort of like a pause right now going on. But what do you foresee in the next week or two unfolding in the Ukraine? Well, they have sections of of the Donbass is now in a cauldron. So actually, the Russian advance has been not only stopped, but it is in a kind of a perilous situation. But I don't think there's going to be very enormous developments there until the 300,000, because those 300,000 people are not going to be deployed for probably another month. So 
but what we really have to wonder about is how this changed the basic dynamic of the war itself, because it's not a special operation anymore. And the, uh, the Russians aren't even calling that. This is the beginnings of a war. And if that wasn't clear before the bombing of Nord Stream, well, it's certainly clear now. So this is a war that's going on ahead of any kind of deliberation among you know, parliaments, congresses, or the people themselves. And the people are being dragged along. And it's going to be interesting to see what the populist reaction is to I mean, when Nord Stream was blown up, as you know, in a number of capitals across Europe, there were already protests. There's, it's a cold, the beginning of autumn has already been cold, and people are very concerned about what's going to happen, not only to that, but to their standard of living and to the shuttering of factories and the dimming of lights, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, we'll have to see how the people react, because obviously the governments, particularly the United States, is willing to go ahead despite how bad it looks in uh, as far as reflecting back on their own actions. And, you know, uh, Pepe Escobar, this is, again, off topic a little bit, but he was saying that it strips away the illusion of any autonomy on the part of European leaders. They basically look like they're vassals operating on behalf of uh, Washington. and so. I think their people are going to see that as well and be very frustrated and probably react. But those movements take time to develop. Yeah, well, well said. I think, you know, it's just a last note. This is not a conflict between Ukraine and Russia. It's a conflict between U.S. and NATO allies and Russia. And Ukraine is its subservient little army of people that is empowering with tens of billions approaching hundreds of billions of dollars of military equipment. Now, now they're moving to more long range equipment. Everything is escalating. It's a very perilous time. And, and Mike, I appreciate the time you've made tonight to uh, help bring light into that darkness to get the American public more informed. I mean, it's our foreign policy. It's our government that needs to be reined in it clearly. And we can't see that for the fog of propaganda. And your, your insights have been very helpful in lifting that fog somewhat. So I want to remind folks, we've had the pleasure of visiting with Mike Whitney. He's a geopolitical and social analyst based in Washington state. And he's a outstanding journalist since 2002, investigative reporter. And and I appreciate your comments today. And if people want to access your most recent work, Mike, I mean, is the UNS Review a good place to go? Or do you have any other suggestions? No, UNS Review is great or Global Research. Okay. And thanks for having me, Pedro. Okay, man. Well, thank you, brother. Appreciate your time. We'll be in touch and look forward to your future writings. See you next week. Don't be late.